Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I can feel it in my fingers. I can feel it in my toes. Summer is all around. This is Chapter 210 of WCBS Author Talks. I'm Lisa Chernkovich, and this week it's all about the books we're taking on vacation this summer. May Cobb shares how a classic 80s movie inspired her latest East Texas page turner. We hear how debut author Adele Myers earned the nickname Southern Discomfort. And we chat with Chanel Clinton about why her latest book is a love letter to her readers. If you're looking for a juicy summer read, look no further than My Summer Darlings, the latest page turner from author May Cobb. Like her previous books, the setting is East Texas, where the summers are hot and the bored, rich women like to stir up trouble. In this case, it's three childhood friends who each become obsessed when a handsome stranger moves into their neighborhood. May and I chatted via Zoom about her entertaining story, as well as the high expectations placed on women, both real and fictional. We've got besties, we have frenemies, we've got rebellious teens, we have a handsome, sexy stranger who moves in next door. This is such a juicy summer read. Why don't you start by, you know, setting up the story a little bit more for us? Well, first of all, thank you so much. Um, Yeah, so My Summer Darlings takes place in a small town in East Texas, and it centers around three lifelong best friends Jen, Kitty, and Cynthia. And they, you know, they, they're all at sort of different stations in their lives, but also sort of similar stations in that they're approaching middle age, they're raising surly teens, and they're pretty bored and restless in the small town. And they, so they kind of get together and have wine night and they gossip. And then a handsome, sexy stranger moves to town. And he takes up residence in one of the the neighborhood's like poshest mansions. And they each in their own way become obsessed with him and get on a crash course towards disaster. (laughs) Uh, I was reading somewhere that the philosopher Kierkegaard once said that boredom was the root of all evil. And that seems to apply very well to this book because there's a lot of not so good stuff that happens with these three women and this guy. <laughs> oh my gosh. I wish I had put that like, you know, in the front of the book. That's such a great quote. <laughs> I also heard that a, a popular eighties film inspired the plot of this book. Yes. Um, so the witches of Eastwick, which I grew up kind of obsessed with that movie. I, I think I was like eight or 10 when it came out, which is <laughs> probably not really appropriate viewing, but everyone, you know, (laughs) everything back then. And uh, yeah, so I just, I love that film and the concept of, uh, you know, a mysterious stranger moving to town and upending the lives of three women. And I wanted to 
yeah, it's sort of transplant that to an East Texas setting, you know, modern day, and then also like none of the paranormal stuff from the film. And if people can't already tell, you're a native of, of East Texas. <laughs> so for my for some of the the northeast you know new york city listeners yes y'all you can hear <laughs> I've, I've lived all over but my accent has never left me what about this part of texas draws you to the the people who live there and, and the characters that inhabit that part of the world i so first of all i just i really love the setting it's such a beautiful part of texas and that it's it's in what's known as the pine curtain so it's this very lush pine forest and that never springs to mind when people think of texas but it's it's very close to louisiana so it's really got that like you know verdant green sort of southern heavy humidity and then just like eerie vibe thing about it. And the people are just very high spirited <laughs> and also just wild. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that like Dallas is two hours away and then Shreveport's an hour away. So there's just not a lot to do in this small town. And when I grew up, it was like 50,000 people. Now it's like a hundred thousand people and there's like an olive garden that's gotten really big <laughs> but um there's also a lot of wealth there and um so you had some like you have all this oil money from like the 1920s and 30s and you have all this sort of old oil money wealth and mansions and glamour and it's like these big fish in a small ponds with just time to kill on their hands and they just sort of make up stuff to do and trouble to get into and it's really just kind of how it is there there's a lot of drinking a lot of partying they love to drink and party there so it's kind of fun to write a book set there because it's like big little lies but in east texas it totally sounds like it's the perfect atmosphere slash setting to write these kinds of books that you write Thank you. I'm pretty obsessed with it. I live in Austin now, but I still definitely get homesick. Um, so it's kind of a way to, you know, revisit home from a safe distance. <laughs> <laughs> You've confessed that uh, about being fascinated by adults who behave badly. And there's, there's a bit of that in this book. And I'm just wondering, like, why do you like to explore these particular characters? Are they just more fun and more interesting than like a goody two-shoes? That's such a great question, Lisa. Yes, what is wrong with me? No, um, I think, <laughs> no, I think you nailed it. I think they are just more fun. And I feel like when I wrote The Hunting Wives, my, my book before this one, and then this one, um, you know, I my son was probably like, five years old and then now he's he's nine and and so I wasn't going out anymore and it was like well this is a kind of a way to have a girl's night out <laughs> in in my own home um and they I think it also lends itself to the thriller aspect because their behavior can be borderline dangerous sometimes and their judgment can get super blurred and so I think it kind of helps like as a suspense device. Um, and they are, they're just so much fun because you don't know what they're going to do. And that's, that's the fun part about it for me is that I like to sort of light the fuse on the powder keg 
and watch it burn down. And I, I sort of never know what's going to happen. So I really try to get inside their heads and let their obsession and whatever it is, take them. And it, that is, that's fun to write because it's like, what are y'all going to do in this situation? Do you think men get more of a pass with this bad behavior than women do? <laughs> Absolutely. Amen. They do. And it's endlessly frustrating to me because I got a bit of backlash from the hunting wives because of my unlikable female characters. And I'm like, this is never, that's a standard that's never applied to men in fiction or film. It's just never even discussed. And it's just accepted and almost like expected that men can run around on their spouses and because they couldn't help it and they're boys being boys. But when a woman does it, you know, and maybe she's even a murderer, but that's not even the part that makes people gasp. It's that she stepped out on like a good man. What's wrong with her? It, it seems to be like, that's what's perceived as very dangerous. And it's interesting because a lot of women are the one doing the criticizing. So it's so internalized. I could really just talk about this until I fall down. <laughs> but yeah, it's a total double standard. Yeah. And, you know, we're not going to give anything away here, but the guy in your book does some not so great things. And I did have a laugh at, at the dedication in your book because you dedicate it to your husband. But then you you say right there that he's in no way like this guy who you're going to read about in this book. Exactly. No, I, thank God. <laughs> and can we continue to expect more of, of this East Texas drama from you and in, in books to come? Yeah, I think so. I So the one I'm working on now, I'm actually in edits on, and it's called A Likeable Woman. And so the lead character is, in some ways, probably my most likable character yet, and maybe my most earnest character. She's trying to solve the murder of her, the mystery behind her mother's murder. And, but she is, she's drawn back to East Texas. She never wanted to return because her frenemy is having a vow renewal party. So even though it's it's like it's not as salacious as the previous two, there's definitely still that East Texas rich women element and what are they up to and what are they going to do? So, um, yeah, I think I, at least this one, I don't know about the next one. I might have to step out of the piney woods for a minute because this has been four books now and I'm like, maybe I should put something on a beach somewhere. <laughs> Texas got a lot of nice beaches. That's true. That's true. <laughs> but, you know, I, I just want to ask, jumping off of, of what you were saying about some of the backlash that you got, is this new character in this new book a result of that? Or did you just want to try to flex a different writing muscle? That's a great question. It honestly was a little bit in response to that. Um, but not so much like, okay, I'm going to write something that people like. And so here it is, because you can never game that system. But more just... It's, it's almost like tongue in cheek because one of the other main characters, her mother that gets murdered was not likable. And so I really wanted to dig into what that means for women and the box that society puts us in. And, and that's probably why she was murdered um, because she had these unlikable traits. So it's, it's part of the conversation that I keep having in my head. <laughs> <And> I, 
reader reviews. <laughs> well, I like the conversations you have in your head because they lead to incredible books. This is such a binge-worthy summer beach or pine wood read, wherever you're reading it. It's it's awesome. Makeup, the new book is My Summer Darlings. Thank you so much for spending some of your time today talking with us and sharing these really unlikable, awful, but totally fascinating female characters <laughs> with us. Thank you, Lisa. I really appreciate you having me on. In the year 2022, we all know how bad tobacco is for our health. But back in 1946, that wasn't the case. It's at this moment in history that Adele Myers sets her debut historical novel, The Tobacco Wives, set in the fictional North Carolina town of Brightleaf. We talked about how she tried to strike the right balance as well as the family history that inspired her story. But first, she sets the scene. So The Tobacco Wives is the story of a young seamstress in 1946 North Carolina who inadvertently discovers some dangerous truths about the big tobacco empire that's ruling the American South and that's employing her. The story is told through the eyes of Maddie Sykes. She's 15 years old. And she has just lost her father in World War II. He was killed. And her mother has basically has a breakdown and abandons Maddie at her great aunt's house in the fictional town of Brightleaf, North Carolina. And after years of, of shortages and living through this war period and, and being part of a working class family, Maddie is enthralled by life in Brightleaf. Um, her aunt has a thriving sewing business there uh, where she sews for pretty much everyone in town, including the working class women who are filling in for men in the, the factories and the, the cigarette um, business. But she really makes her money every year sewing for the wealthy wives of Brightleaf tobacco executives. And these are the women that everyone calls the tobacco wives. And so through a series of events, Maddie finds herself um, filling in for her aunt, being the, the lead dressmaker for these wives. And as she gets drawn into their world, she realizes that things are not as perfect as they may appear. And she runs across some information she's not supposed to see and has to decide what to do with that. Now, we have the blessing of hindsight in knowing that tobacco is responsible for a whole host of health problems, whether you smoke it or, or not. Right. What was it like to balance those facts with the story that you wanted to tell in the time period that you wanted to tell it? One thing that I found very helpful is to talk to family members. And because both um, sides of my family are from Winston-Salem, Brightleaf is based on Winston-Salem, North Carolina, which was the tobacco capital of the South. And the story was initially inspired by the fact that one of my grandmothers was a hairdresser for the wives of R.J. Reynolds tobacco executives in the 1940s. And so that kind of inspired me. And as I began to work on the book, um, there's one, one conversation in particular that I had with my father that kind of um, was an aha moment for me. And it was when he talked about working in the cigarette factories as a teenager during the summers. And he talked about how horrific the conditions were. And some of those details ended up in the book and are, are true stories. But 
almost in the same breath, he said to me, as, as, as difficult as it was, those were, we were incredibly proud to be part of building the tobacco capital of the South. And at that time, people really had no idea that it was dangerous. And there was this, um, this you know, community pride. And, and I thought that that was such an interesting moment in time to try to capture, which I think is what you're getting at with your question. It's, it's like, how do you, in hindsight, like it's hard to believe that people didn't know that it was dangerous. But they they didn't. I mean, if you look back at advertising, if you look at film, everyone smoked. All the celebrities smoked. Doctors, um, you know, touted the health benefits of cigarettes in advertising. So I really wanted to capture that moment of before they knew, like it was just as it was beginning to unravel. And also, I think it's fair to point out that the everyday people, the people working in the, fa the factory workers, the, the, the economy that sprung up around the tobacco executives, their wives, mm -hmm. even if it, they wouldn't have had access to that knowledge anyway, they were reliant upon the folks in charge right. telling them what was what. And you get to that, too, in your book, because you have this conspiracy in a way, mm -hmm. you know, that that Maddie uncovers. Right. Right. Absolutely. I mean, they certainly couldn't Google information for themselves. <laughs> and doctors were revered. I mean, they were the holder of all the information about your health. And so people rarely questioned them. I mean, just culturally, the doctor was the authority. So I think getting those messages from authorities like doctors um, and I think there's something about the fact too that tobacco grows and it's natural and it's how could I mean there are a couple of lines in the book I think where I where Maddie the main character is kind of reflecting on how could this possibly be bad this is a gift of the land and well, I guess I have to ask then the green monster that's a real thing right it is it is a real thing and I ran across that in my research that's not something that I knew about and the green monster refers to a, a type of, it was a nickname for nicotine poisoning. And so even interacting with the, the tobacco leaves in the fields, um, the nicotine would seep through the worker's skin and make them sick. Um, I know that you said that the story was inspired by by stories that you heard from your own family. But I do like that you mentioned in, in your author's note that while your grandmother was a hairdresser to these women, she never really shared any gossip with you. So none of that <laughs> made its way into the book. No, and I would I would bug her. I mean, she used to cut my hair. So I remember sitting at her, she had a beautiful vanity table and she would be trimming my hair and I would, I just had this kind of little girl fascination with these women and I was sure that, um, having that intimate relationship with them that she would know a lot. And I know I certainly tell the person who cuts my hair much more than I should. <laughs> and <laughs> I think I, we all do. <laughs> we all do. And I thought that that relationship was interesting and the, the class difference and that, that closeness. But my grandmother, we called her Memo and Memo, she was very religious. And so she usually would just, um, quote a Bible verse about the sins of gossip <laughs> rather than give me any really good dirt. 
on the wives. So I think in many ways she inspired me to come up with my own. And we should know that within the wives themselves, while they're the top of society in Brightleaf, there are also different tiers within them, which makes the dynamics really interesting. Right, right. There are definitely the top tier wives with Mitzi Winston being, you know, the most, um, I kind of call her the queen bee of the tobacco wives. She's married to the president of Brightleaf Tobacco. And then there are secondary wives that have less status within the community. While I was reading this book, I had to keep reminding myself that Maddie was so young because it, she felt older to me, maybe because of everything she had gone through already when she got to this point in the book. But her steadfast belief is she has to do what's right and that the adults around her, you know, they kind of waver in their convictions or maybe don't go as far as she wants them to go. Mm-hmm. And I kind of was struck that it's kind of sad that as we age, things aren't so black and white anymore. There's a lot of gray. And I think Maddie, right. we kind of realized that with Maddie as she's realizing it herself. Absolutely. Yes. And I, I spent a lot of time trying to really get her level of sophistication and voice right and appropriate for her age. And I've heard some other readers say she seems older than 15, but part of that is also um, based on that time in history in the forties at, at 15 you were on the cusp of getting married, of working to help your family. Um, I think there was a maturity level there that um, I don't think it's fair to compare it to today necessarily, but um, but I spent a lot of time trying to get that right. And yes, I mean, she, over the course of one summer, her eyes are opened to the fact that that life is more complicated than she realized. And there is, uh, we fast forward quite a bit towards the end of your book, where I guess you could say there's some sort of reckoning or at least uh, an agreement to do what's right. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Um, Endings are tough. And I I spent quite a bit of time um, trying to get that right and to not necessarily tie it up with a bow, but to give my readers some sense of closure and satisfaction. So hopefully I achieved that. I had to imagine that this just had to be just really tough to juggle all of it. <laughs> like, you know, try, <laughs> trying to hit the right tone while, you know, talking about something that has really been villainized in modern society. Yes, yes. And one of the things I've learned, because this is my first book, is that the original manuscript and the work is a solitary exercise. But as um, as I started to work with an agent and as I started to work with my publisher and my editor, um, I got a lot of feedback that helped me strike that right balance. And it really becomes more of a collaborative effort, um, you know, the further you get towards the publishing process. So do you think the second book will be easier to write? It's funny. I've started researching and I have a concept for a second book and it's kind of daunting. I do feel like (laughs) I've learned a lot and maybe in my naive (laughs) first book um, situation, I, I think I felt more free in some ways because I didn't know what I didn't know, if that makes sense. So will it be uh, another historical fiction? 
It will. It'll be another historical fiction. It will be based in the South, and it will also have to do with another cover-up situation, but one that's not well known. (laughs) (laughs) I like cover-ups, and um, at one time, one of my writing teachers nicknamed me Southern Discomfort. And I think that's, that's fantastic. That's, that's my niche. I like to write about Southern discomfort. So, <laughs> well, I look forward to that. In the meantime, people can pick up the Tobacco Wives, which is out now. Adele Myers, thank you for your time today. Thanks so much. A little known fact in Cuban history inspired our last days in Barcelona, the latest historical novel from Chanel Clayton, centered around the fictional Perez family sisters. Her books have earned a huge fan following, and Chanel tells me if it weren't for those readers, this new book wouldn't even exist. You once again pull us into the lives of the Perez sisters with this story. This time we get to follow Isabel as she goes to Barcelona in search of her sister Beatrice, who stopped communicating with the family. But before I say anything more, why don't you tell us where Isabel's story takes us? So Isabel's story takes us on an adventure um, when she arrives in Barcelona in 1964 looking for Beatrice. Um, She uncovers this family secret that she never knew existed and really learns quite a bit about herself in the process. Um, She gets involved in kind of some dangerous situations and her story interlaps with that of her um, mother, who we learn more about, Alicia Perez. And so that takes us back to the 1930s to 1936. Um, and Alicia has just arrived in Barcelona with young Isabel in tow. And this is kind of right at the start of the Spanish Civil War. And so we get to follow her journey and also that of another Perez family member, um, Rosa, who's in Cuba in the uh, 1930s. And so we see a bit of the political climate there as these three women's stories um, come together. Your books um, about the Perez sisters and the Perez family have always had uh, Cuba at its heart because this is where the family is from, where they had to flee uh, for the revolution. But in this story, we kind of get to see how those events in Cuba parallel what had happened earlier in Barcelona and in Spain before the start of the Spanish Civil War. Yes, and I was really interested in looking at that relationship between Spain and Cuba. Um, It really came to me while I was researching my previous book, The Most Beautiful Girl in Cuba, which is set during the um, fight for independence from Spain and Cuba at the end of the 19th century. And when I was doing that research, you know, I, I was kind of really entrenched in this conflict between Spain and Cuba. And it was interesting. I just came across a mention about how many Cubans went to Spain to fight during the Spanish Civil War um, to fight on the Republican side. And I think, you know, looking at the time period to go from 1898, where they were kind of locked in this very um, violent conflict that had been going on for a while, and then to to think that just in the 30s, you know, that not that much longer, um, Cubans were traveling to Spain to, to help out and to help the Spanish fight, really um, just kind of struck me as, as being such a... Um, such a representation of the relationship between Cuba and Spain that's been so close over the centuries. And so I wanted to explore that a little bit more. Um, I think particularly as a Cuban American that has a lot of Spanish ancestry, I was definitely interested in in looking at the relationship between the two countries and how that developed in the 20th century. And you kind of get at what my next question is for readers who aren't familiar with your books. Tell us how your own family history kind of started out this whole series for you. Yes. So um, I first started writing about Cuban historical fiction with Next Year in Havana. 
And I am Cuban American. My family came from Cuba in the 60s. And I was really just inspired by kind of the stories that I'd grown up hearing from my grandparents and their love of their country. And um, with that, I, I wrote Next Year in Havana, and it sort of evolved from there as I've been able to follow the Perez family, um, which is my fictional you know, Cuban family through history and through sort of all these pivotal moments in, in Cuban-American history. For Isabel in this book, painting is a way for her to remain connected to the life she once knew in Cuba and really still longs for and can't get over. Um, are these the these stories that you write? Is that kind of your way of staying connected with the past? Absolutely. And and I definitely put some of that into Isabel's character. You know, when I'm connecting with my characters, I really try to find commonalities between us. And um, those are often the threads that whenever you get lost in the story or you're not sure the direction it's going, you can kind of go back to those and, and you know, tug on them a bit. And I think really um, in exile communities, it is something I've certainly noticed is this um, desire to sort of keep the past alive through various means. And so I think for Isabel to have art be an outlet for her and also, you know, a way for her to remember her life in Cuba just felt like a very natural evolution of her character and something that I could certainly um, connect to and respect and identify with. And without her knowing it, her love of art ends up connecting her to an experience her mother had while she was in Spain. But we're not going to get into that because I think (laughs) we don't want to give that part of it away. And as I mentioned at the top of this interview, you've written books about Isabel's sisters. And you write in your author's note that you didn't you you didn't really intend to keep writing books about the Paris sisters, right? Yes, um, I was very much inspired by my readers. You know, when I wrote Next Year in Havana, I sort of thought that would be it, and then Beatrice came to me in all of her sort of fabulous glory, and that inspired me to to write When We Left Cuba. But I really thought that was kind of it for the the sisters, and then I started getting messages from readers asking me when I was going to tell the other sister stories. And it sort of just kind of stuck with me over the the next books that I wrote. And, and then I decided that it was really the right time. And I felt Isabel speaking to me as a character. And I, I wanted to tell her story to kind of honor the readers that have been so supportive of this series and so passionate about these characters. We've got one sister left. Is there a book coming? We will see. I mean, obviously never say never because I I didn't intend for Isabel. I have an idea for Maria. um, So it's sort of in the back of my mind. So it's it's definitely something I may visit down the road. All the the press around the book describes it as a really great beach read. And it totally is down to the cover where we have a woman lounging in a chair on a Barcelona beach. But there is some very serious themes in this book. And I'm just wondering what is your hope that readers walk away from after reading it? You know, I always just want readers to to be as immersed in my books as possible. I really try to kind of create an experience that I hope transports them to the time period and helps them understand um, the history and, and the setting and, and feel like they're really there with the characters and kind of going through some of these choices and decisions with the characters. You know, I definitely also want my readers to, to be entertained. I think there's nothing more, you know, wonderful than picking up a book and just kind of losing yourself in the story and in the characters and in that moment. Um, And also really this book was kind of a love letter to my readers as as a thank you for all of their support and how much they sort of advocated for for Isabel's story to be told. So I hope that I I did her justice and that they they enjoy the adventure that she takes us on. All right. Before I let you go, I have one final question after having read the book, and I promise I'm not going to give anything away. (laughs) But 
I, I, I need to ask, at the end of the book, the readers, or as readers, we get to discover this little tidbit about a certain piece of jewelry mm-hmm. that, that connects some of the family members. And I just want to know, will your characters ever find out? Or in their world, do they ever find out? Or is this a secret that gets taken to the grave? I think they will, because I think there are people that are still, um, I'm trying to think not to be too spoiler, but I think there are people <laughs> who will recognize it. And, and we'll be able to to impart the missing piece. Right, that just gives me it gives me so much joy to know that 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 reveal is coming, even if it never happens in another book, just to know that in this fictional world that keeps going after you after the final page, that that there's going to be this incredible surprise <laughs> for this. Family. Yes, yes. And I wanted readers to sort of know that, too, and have that that hope for her that that, that would come. So. Well, we've been talking with Chanel Clayton. The book is Our Last Days in Barcelona. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. This is wonderful. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Next time, writer Adrian McKinty is back with another summer blockbuster that once again puts parents through the ringer. Until then, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkov.